0: Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia and you're listening to the Singapore Noodles podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today I have on the show Shazwan Majid, who is the founder of One's Ubin Journal, which is a community and a blog that seeks to share about the rich heritage and diverse community present on the island of Pulau Ubin. Through community initiatives and sharings on social media, one actively preserves, protects, and celebrates what he calls the Kampong culture so that more Singaporeans would recognize that our Kampongs are an invaluable part of our national identity. Shall we start with um, a little bit about yourself, about your background? So I understand that you didn't live in Pulau ubin your, your whole life. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about your background?
1: I was born in KK Hospital like many other Singaporeans in the mainland but um, one thing for sure when um, I was growing up that was when my mum would share maybe me like her stories of growing up in a kampung and what was most unique to me at the time was that it wasn't just like any random kampung on the mainland but it was actually a kampung on Pulau but of course me being young I didn't care which was something when I look back I feel like why didn't I care but you know eventually when we come to realize that um, the islands of Singapore, at least the offshore islands of Singapore, has its own unique history, uh, its own unique community and culture. Uh, eventually, you will come to learn and love and appreciate it. So that's how I eventually go. I did eventually grow curious. I think after many years of my mom um, acting like a broken record, uh, sharing with me nonstop the stories of a kampung life, uh, it was only like 2018 and 20, 2018 when I was still serving my national service that I finally decided to like actually go down and and uh, try to find where my grandparents' house was. Lah. And um, it was interesting to me because when I was young, when my mom brought me back during a June school holidays, I remember specifically that we used to ride on this uh, tandem bikes the way the two seats. And what we did was my mom would cycle all the way to this particular area. And I still remember that back in 2006, there used to still be this um, this remnants of a house. It still had pictures inside it. It still had a rotten jackfruit hanging on a tree right in front. And then my mom used to tell me, oh, this is by the way, where your eldest aunt used to used to stay. And to me, I'm like, oh, okay, that's actually interesting. And that's coming from a premier, four, premier, premier three, premier four kid. And afterwards, I saw that my mom sort of abandoned me outside because she suddenly went and uh, trekked through, through the tall grass right between the tree and the house to go further inside into the forest. And then I actually asked my mom, like, why did you decide to go inside and come back out just shortly after? And then that's when my mom said, oh, because I was just trying to find my, my own house. Lah. So to me, back in back when I was still young, I joked to my mom. I still remember joking with my mom, saying, "Okay, never mind. Later, when one suddenly, when one is finally um, older, I'll find the house for you." Then my mom said, "Dream on." So afterwards, what happened is in 2018, I found my grandparents' house. And when I was inside the, the forest with all the poor reception there, I tried to call my mom at the very spot. And I told my mom, uh, "Ma, I I found I found I found your house." Then my mom said Dream on <laughs> so she still couldn't believe that, that i found it la. so it was only like a month later when my mom's health was a little bit better that i brought her down to in and i brought her down to her to the exact spot and that was when i actually saw like my mom tearing up uh, because it was really the the foundation of the house was correct the location of the house was correct and so like for myself like how did i manage to like deduce that that was the exact spot was really based on the photos and the oral Um, narration that my mom used to say so like one of the key things that I wanted to find uh, to look out for was this well so my mom's house used to have two wells one for showering and one for um, consumption so the one for showering was was exactly five steps from the kitchen door so when I found a well and I saw this foundation of a house there was a clear indication that in the foundation, there was like this opening, so it must be a door. And I literally walked five steps and I reached the well. So that was how I managed to, to conclude that that was my grandparents' house. And together with some other like um, physical description around the place, like I need to look up for this particular tree. I don't know what's the scientific name of the tree or the English name of the tree, but in Malay, we call it the Pokok Gower. And this tree happened to be in my mom's old photos. And when I was standing... Uh, at this particular stretch in the forest, I managed to find the same tree, but it's obviously much more taller and, and wider, lah, but it's very prominent. So so that's how I was able to confirm it. And when I saw my mom crying, I confirmed it really mm. <laughs> Why would my mom cry a very foreign place anyway?
0: Yeah. So for your mom, it was a very emotional experience of connecting with her memories and her roots. But what about for you? I mean... Um, what is the relevance of Pulau Wubin to you and what what sparked that desire to go back and really reclaim your history?
1: I think for myself like especially in recent years when we think about Pulau uh when your friends were to ask you like hey, let's go to Plowbin, they'll always say oh uh, let's go cycling there or hey, let's find some wild boars, let's look at some monkeys and I'll be like, you know you can still go to the zoo for that right but then never mind they still want to go to Plowbin to look at all this uh, all this uh, wildlife which which to me, um, I, I didn't mind the beginning because I've always viewed Plobin when I was young as a place for recreation. But over time, when I finally came to learn and understand my roots on the island, and from the stories that my mom used to share by the people who used to live there, and from my interaction with the former residents who used to live there, um, to me, Plobin is more than just a place of recreation. And as for myself, to be actually considered as a descendant from the Plobin community, it is something that. I consider like somewhat like a responsibility to make sure that these stories of the people who used to live there continue to, to live on. Uh, if it's not with the next generation of people from the Ubin community, then at least in the next generation of younger Singaporeans. So, you know, as as it's in a way that at least for us, uh, our stories move on. Uh, and one thing for sure, the stories of those on Plur Ubin is still considered a part of the chapter of those who live in Singapore anyway. So... We're all Singaporeans, so Pulao is just one unique chapter of it.
0: Mm. Were you always proud of your own heritage growing up? Did you feel different? Did you actively try to you know, tell people, I have an islander kind of identity?
1: I think back in school, not really. But I guess only in national service, when I finally decided to find my grandparents' house, that was when my sense of pride to my identity started to grow. And it's really through my time, like, inter- like I said, like through interacting with the residents there and understanding the stories, understanding the history and heritage and culture over there. Uh, that was when I came to realize that, yeah, this is definitely something that I should be proud of also. And to me, it's also quite unique because where else would you find a Singaporean that happened to be a descendant from an offshore island? Like you always hear, like oh, maybe my mom was from Gilang or my mom was from Bedok, but My mom was literally from Pulau Bin. Like to hear the word Pulau, uh, from someone who came from Singapore, I think that, to me, sounds extremely unique.
0: Mm. And, um, you know, now that, I mean, you have always grown up in Singapore City, so how do you feel that this part of your heritage is still relevant to you now?
1: I think for now, what makes Pulau much more unique than the other offshore islands is, I would consider this to be the last surviving island that has any sign of kampung life. So right now, in terms of its relevance with our modern metropolitan landscape, uh, Pulau Bin is still home to some of the last few standing uh, kampung houses. And as for Kampung Sungai Durian, which happened to be the last surviving offshore Malay kampung in Singapore, I think it's also quite important for myself to, to keep on raising awareness about this. Because like, I think it's synonymous to the Malay community that whenever we think of the kampongs, uh, Sorry, whenever we think about Hari Raya, we always have the phrase Balik Kampong So whenever we want a Balik Kampong for Singapore, it feels quite weird Because like we're not like Malaysia like If let's say for those who happen to be in the cities like Kuala Lumpur And then every Hari Raya, they'll have to make that migration across the peninsula To, to go back to the village That literal, That literal process of going back home uh, in Singapore, we don't have it anymore. But at least for those on Ploughbin, they used to say every time like, Eh, hey, Balik Kampung ah, Balik Kampung. So I guess like back then when when I would say like for the first few residents who happened to move to the mainland, but still had their homes on Ploughbin, for them, the idea of Balik Kampung was very real. And so for them, the feeling of Hari Raya was much more stronger for them because there's literally a migration from the busy city landscape to the peaceful Kampung life again.
0: Mm. And I saw that recently you had a Balik Kampung event. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: So the Balik Kampung event uh, took place in 2019. And when I look back at it, I would consider it's a blessing because I, I was actually planning for it to be in 2020 because it sounds much more cooler than 2019. But you know, it's actually a blessing because nobody knew about <clears throat> COVID coming over. So that's why at least like looking back, Um, It was really a blessing to have organized this Balik Kampung event. So this Balik Kampung event was actually um, brought out by me back in August 2018. Back then I was just new in this um, group called the Friends of Obin Network. So the Friends of Obin Network is basically like a group of uh, stakeholders who are interested to um, um, plan activities or or basically just have a stake on Pulau Bin, uh, be it through stakeholders, staff or community organizations and uh, other activities there. So like back then in August 2018, I came to realize that, that for Pulau Bin, there used to be a certain period of time, usually lasting from like a day to two weeks or a whole month, where they call it Pesta Ubin. So it's basically like a Pulau bin Festival. But one thing that I realized that ever since its inception, it, if I'm not wrong, in 2014, most of the Pesta Ubin celebrations had been within the time frame where it's Ramadan and Shawal at the same time so it's always like a Hari Raya period when the whole um, festival took place but what I came to understand is that throughout the whole time uh, nobody within the stakeholder group has actually planned like a Hari Raya celebration which to me seems to be like the most logical thing to do lah. because if you already have um, an entire festival that lasts throughout the whole festive period of Hari Raya, why didn't you do it? Mm. So that's why in August 2018, uh, it was my first time, it was my first meeting and this person with the loud mouth raised the hand and asked, uh, I realized that you guys have been uh, holding this Pista Open for so long but you never did a Hari Raya celebration, can can, can we do it for next year or, or, or 2020? And then all of a sudden they'll be like, yes, it's a good idea. And basically, I just couldn't arrow. La. <laughs> so I just cannot error to do the whole thing. But I would consider it quite a very meaningful thing that happened. La. And back then, I think I was still 21. yeah mm. I was 21 or 22. So they asked this 21 or 22-year-old to chair an entire um, reunion uh, for, for former residents. So it was hectic. That when looking back, the whole process was hectic. But it was definitely worth it because at the end of the day, Um, over 350 former residents came back and when they returned, they returned with extended families and their children and their grandchildren they also brought along some friends to to show them the entire landscape of Ploughbyn and I would definitely consider that as one of the highlights that I've done for the Obin community to to have them come back and uh, to just enjoy being in the company of their old friends Mm -hmm. like there's also one particular incident that I will remember is that there was this former resident she recently went through a leg surgery, so she was still um, in need of like a walking assistance, like using a cane. But she still made it all the way to the island because of her sense of longing to, to come back to the island and to meet people. So it was then also that I saw that she started to have tears, of, I would say tears of joy, I hope, that when she that when she finally came back, she managed to um, meet her primary school teachers whom she had not met for 40 years so for four decades, uh, she, was, she had not seen them. But when she finally found them, she started to cry. She went up to the teacher and said, do you remember me? And then the teacher said, how can I forget you? And to me, that kind of like emotional relationship and that sense of like, um, joy that they had in terms of their memories on the island, it was quite evident that for these people on Pulau their sense of belonging to Pulau is still extremely strong even though they no longer have their homes there anymore.
0: Mm. And for you, someone who didn't grow up on the island and don't have all these memories, um, did you ever experience these kind of emotional moments on the island?
1: I guess like for me in terms of like emotional moments is whenever um, some of the former residents would show me around the kampung. So like right now for the kampung, there, there's only like 14 houses still standing. But for uh, this is for kampung Durian, So there used to be 14 houses Uh, still standing today but in the past there were at least nearly 47 to 50 houses in the past so right now whatever you see in the malay kampung and is not what it was like in the past so it's still definitely like a far cry from how it was in its heyday so like in terms of my emotional attachment sometimes when the former resident would just bring me around the island just to go for a walk they would just remind me that oh by the way this is uh, where who and who used to stay this is what uh, who and who used to do over here this is what they used to do over there but for me it's quite sad because when I walk there I see nothing but trees and grass but for them they can still vividly remember the shape of the house the color of the house who used to stay there what were their parents names what were their children's names what were their jobs their occupation and to me that is something that I Somehow I've considered quite blessed that I'm able to relate in that kind of sense. Like I'm able to visualize a bit, but uh, it's like as though the memories were passed down to me and, and I'm just literally just playing back what used to be in the past. Lah.
0: Mm. So when you started Once Ubin Journal, what was your mission?
1: Initially, when I first started once a journal in 2018, it was literally just for me to document my findings of uh, trying to find my grandparents' house. Uh, it was really literally just a block for me to trace, like saying, okay, here's my first attempt to find my grandparents' house. Is it going to be good? Is it going to be okay? How was the weather? And everything like that. But eventually, um, when I started to interact with more of the former residents there, and after learning about their stories, I felt that, you know, my story just doesn't seem complete if I don't actually tell the stories of these other people as well. So that's why eventually once Obin Journal decided to grow, to become a platform that hopefully advocates for the conservation and celebration of the Pulo community as a whole. Uh, but I guess for now, primarily, I'm focusing more on the Malay community because uh, if you we were to look at the current books that are available uh, on Pulau most of it would dwell on the Chinese community. But I realized that almost little to none has mentioned about the Malay community. So I hope that through One Subin Journal, um, primarily I'm able to help raise more awareness about the Malay kampungs that used to exist on Bin and the uh, way of life for the Malay people uh, on the islands. Lah.
0: Mm. So, in in that sense, uh, one Journal is very much looking back to the past um, and providing a fairer representation of what life was really like on the kampongs. But what about moving forward? Is there anything that you aspire would change or would um you know come out of this history with Pulau Ubin?
1: I guess like some of the aspirations that I have is that hopefully one day Singaporeans will look into our kampongs and no longer view them as this, um, mental. Uh, no longer have this mentality that our kampongs used to remind us of poverty, used to, uh, is, a, is a signal or a sign of our third world status, um, because this kind of views is technically not true, uh, at least in my perspective, when I look at the kampongs. Uh, they are not slums, they are not disease-ridden, as what um, the old um, historical anecdotes used to mention about the kampongs. Because uh, at least, from my view, at least not for those on plowbin, because the those on Plur bin, we used to have our own land. And uh, people used to take pride in their cleanliness. And so like the, we would have like huge courtyards that were completely free of litter, completely free of wheat, completely free from any sign of reforestation. And uh, and the houses were so well maintained. And to me, um, when we look back at the kampongs, I hope that eventually people won't look at it as like, oh, it's just a house that's made of wood. But mainly because even in building the kampong houses requires a particular skill that is unfortunately no longer prevailing in our generation. And this kind of skills are only those who used to live in the kampong and those who managed to learn from their forefathers on how to build these houses. So like, especially for the Malay houses, um, what is interesting that I've managed to learn about houses is that when we build these wooden houses, we do not use any form of nails or screws. Everything is attached like a puzzle. So that is why when they they said that, well, I'm going to move house, they literally would just dismantle the house, pick another plot of land and rebuild the house. And so to me, that was something that was extremely, I would say, interesting and intriguing and so, like, like, so eventually, hopefully, in the future, when people look back in our kampongs, um, they don't view it as a slum, but instead they take pride in it. Because for myself, when I look at a kampong, it reminds us of our humble beginnings, it reminds us of our identity, and it reminds us of our culture. So, in more than any, more than anything, hopefully, in future, Singaporeans will look back and they will actually take pride in these kampongs. And no longer just have to refer to the kampongs every time you need to shoot a new movie that, that talks about the, the old days. But rather, you just protect the kampongs that already exist, especially on Pulau Bin. And if possible, try to expand it again. I think it's the aspirations of many former residents of Pulau Bin to be able to come back to the island and to rebuild their homes and to stay there again. So for the time being, I'm not sure if we're heading in that direction or if that is something that the government is willing to look at. But at least for the same time, we just want to raise more awareness of how the kampung life is like and what we can do to make sure that the current kampung that still stands today in singapore can be protected and can be celebrated and that's something that i think once who been you know, is um hoping to achieve
0: Mm. And I think some uh, a phrase that a lot of Singaporeans are very familiar with is the kampong spirit. But you know, when we talk about kampong spirit, I'm sure the kampong that people are referring to are predominantly, you know, those kampongs that were built within the st- city itself rather than on Pulau Ubin. So how is kampong spirit different on Pulau Ubin, in your opinion?
1: I think on, in my opinion, what was very interesting that is very prevalent is uh, every time my mum drag me to attend weddings because uh, usually I don't know who they are. And we, and I know because like usually for weddings, you would think of maybe relatives or distant cousins. But then there's always a phrase that my mom said, oh, um, the one who uh, the one who's getting married is the, is the children of a former villager, a former islander. And to me, I'm like, huh? I'm like why, why would people invite their neighbors? It's like so weird, at least in terms of our context today, for neighbors to invite neighbors, I guess you need to have an extremely strong relationship but that's when I went on to to also learn from my mom. It's like, oh, by the way, they're not just like a neighbor that's just next next to us. They live in the opposite kampung, but we're still in the same island, but the opposite kampung. And to me, that was something that that is kind of like testament to the very idea of kampung spirit. Lah. Like, despite the fact that Pulau bin is extremely huge and vast, but they are able to know uh, the people who would stay on one end of the island to the other. And to me, that is something that you wouldn't find anymore in Singapore today, at least from what I feel. Because like, even honestly, like right now, we are staying in our HDB flats. We may be staying on the same floor, but chances are we don't even know the neighbors that's right next to us or even the one right after them. So to me, that is literally like a clear sign of how of how different a Kampong space really is uh, compared, uh, comparing now to, to how it was like in the past. Uh.
0: And mm. why do you think this Kampong spirit has faded away in modern Singapore?
1: I think in modern Singapore, I don't know if convenience might be one of the convenience and a very busy life could be a, something that attributes to this kind of uh, fading of the Kampong spirit. Because when we look back in the times, of course, when it's in a Kampong kind of situation, people was associated to like living a much more difficult life. But strangely enough, for like my mom, she will always say, "Sure, it was difficult, but at least it was simple." And for me, that was something that was very interesting. At least for like us in this generation, where we're living inside the city, or or like how we say in our HDB flats, living in our concrete pigeon holes, it's literally a very different kind of like a um, different kind of uh, environment that we're living in. So, in terms of like the past when we were faced with difficulty, when we were going through certain crises, like for example, like what my mom used to share last time uh, on plugin, there used to be this dry spell and many of the wells on the island actually dried up. But for my grandparents' house, their well was blessed enough to still have a lot of water. So what happened was my grandfather used to instruct my mom to go around to the neighbors and ask, how's your water supply? Is it okay? If it's dried up, come to our house, immediately just use the water, don't care how much. And to me, that is something that's, that is literally very um, beautiful. La. Like literally, like for us, we were all equally um, maybe poor or equally going through the same crisis. So like maybe like, like another phrase or analogy is that we might all be on the same boat, but at least for them, uh, at least for us, you know, no matter how difficult things are, we always know that there are others who are going through much more difficult times and it is up to us to make sure that we all pull through together. And to me, that was something that I would definitely look back as, uh, as an interesting um, uh, um, as an interesting way to to view how the kampung spirit should be. Mm.
0: Because like,
1: like right now in Singapore, like when everything is be- has become so convenient, whenever you want food, you just go to the supermarket or you just call grab and it's there. But in terms of for us in the islands, you had to work for your food. And then even when you work for your food and then when you realize that actually your neighbors have been starving for so long and you know that you also need to feed your your children and so that's when you actually have to make some compromises even though you you may not have familial ties with your neighbors but because you know that they're going through a harder time than you you still make the effort to make sure that they are able to pull through and to me that is something that that really truly resembles a kampung spirit
0: Mm. and how do you think we can you know Draw on that experience of living in Pulau Rubin and experiencing that kind of Kampong spirit. How can we draw upon that and cultivate a kind of Kampong spirit in modern Singapore?
1: We also have to be very realistic and understand and remember that even though we are living in like a city like landscape and stuff, we still need to understand that there are still those struggling in here. Like even though, like for example, we could say like those living in rental flats, or if some of us do happen to know that there are those who are homeless. Uh, we still have a part to play. So in terms of like Singapore, like sure, maybe some of us are so blessed enough to be staying in HDD flats or condos or landed properties. And so at least for us, we still have a part to play. And if we really want to be a living example of a kampung spirit, reach out to those in need. Because to me, when if I were to say, if I were to like talk about Singapore, what it means, what is the Singaporean spirit? It means to help one another and to be there together. And so Um, It's always important for us to make sure that nobody gets left behind in this country. So whatever we can do to help out those in need, just go ahead and do it. Because one thing for sure, we are a small country, but the biggest asset that we have is each other. So one thing for sure that if we want to pull through any crisis, even let's say for this COVID pandemic, the most important thing is for all of us to cooperate and work together. That has been the way we pulled through for many crises. And that will be the way for us to go to future places.
0: You know, when I was talking to Fadawas from Orang Lawood, he was telling me about the unique cuisine that um, they experienced on the island. The uh, kind of a unique uh, seafood or, or techniques that his uh, ancestors would use to uh, catch fish and things like that. So I was wondering if there was a similar, you know, qu- like unique cuisine or food culture on Pulau Ubin. Yeah.
1: So um, in terms of like any um, unique cuisine uh for the people of ubin. I'm not quite sure if my mom used to used to like highlight any signature things because at least for Fredaos, for Orang Lao they do have an interesting array of um, um cuisine for themselves but for Ubin I guess it's I, I would say maybe basic but I, I can't really speak for this uh, because in terms of login um we were quite happy to still have like a lot of land. So um for those that that did have their own plots of land uh, they were able to farm all sorts of produce. So like for my grandparents, um, they used to plant a lot of like papayas, pineapples, pandan leaves, um, turmeric leaves, um, basic spices that are prominent in Malay cuisine, they were able to plant it all around the house. And uh, also for my grandfather, he also used to go fishing. So he would row his sampan up to the streets and he would just fish um, uh, for any types of fish that's available. And for my grandmother, my mom used to mention that every time it rains and as soon as the rain clears, my grandmother would immediately head up to the forest to forage for these mushrooms. So I don't know how these things happen because I would say that this is just some knowledge that's just prominent for the islander community that uh, as soon as it finish, uh, as soon as the rain clears, that's when the mushrooms will pop up uh, from all the fallen logs and stuff. And that's when you're able to just collect it and then just eat it. Lah. So to me, I guess like for plobin, because we were able to have a lot of land as compared to others considering that plobin is the second largest offshore island in Singapore, um, we were able to sustain our own food in a way. La. We don't have to depend too much on on others.
0: Yeah um, and I think I read about the horseshoe crab on your Instagram and to be honest I've never eaten or like caught a horseshoe crab before. But in mm. my uh, uh, in my impression of it, just looking at photos, it looks like like it has a hard shell. Um and uh it, it seems like there'll be very little meat. So can you tell me about your experiences eating this uh crab?
1: Okay, here's the brutal truth. I've also never eaten a horseshoe crab. Oh. But in terms of like my mom, my mom would always used to to be able to eat it. Because like in uh, back in the days my mom used to share with me her stories of catching the horseshoe crabs. And I don't know if this is really by coincidence or if it's really fact that in order for you to hunt for the horseshoe crab, you must wait for the high tides. And the tides must be quite high that it actually reaches into the white, the sand, the whiter parts of the beach, like basically the sense that the sand that is very further inland. So if the water was very high, my mom used to say that the horseshoe crabs used to love the white sandy beaches. So my mom usually after school she would head down the beach back to her house and because the, the school used to be uh, the, in order for you to reach to the school, you had to take that path uh, which was by the beach. So it was literally a coastal trail to the school. So for my mom, what she did was after school, uh, she and her friends would just slowly look at the beach, uh, especially with high tide. She would just travel along the beach and just keep a lookout for any movement in the water. And sooner and surely enough, my mom would come across a horseshoe crab and what she'll do is she'll just grab it and then quickly go back home, and then give to give to a mom and say, "Okay, mom, uh, I wanna I wanna eat horseshoe crab today." And so my my grandmother was among those who was skilled enough to, uh, to prepare the horseshoe crab because the horseshoe crabs they do contain toxins. So if you if it's wrongly consumed, you are able to be intoxicated, and uh, it could be detrimental to your health, So what my mom used to say is that the um, the horseshoe crab doesn't really have a lot of meat so you're quite correct in that and to me i don't even consider horseshoe crabs um, something that i want to consider as eating because it looks so alien to me but for my mom and for most of the islanders in the past who used to consume the horseshoe crabs they are usually sought after for their eggs and my mom used to say that these eggs are so exquisite it's like as though you're eating something extremely expensive but it wasn't it wasn't really something that would be considered extremely expensive but i guess in today's terms you might because it's considered an endangered species nowadays but um for them in the past like these horseshoe crabs they were really just sought after mostly for their eggs and uh and their taste uh usually they would cook it over an open fire so you had that very nice uh, roasted taste according uh that nice roasted taste uh, like for intertidal marine creatures they would go for the mollusks. so like basically like the lalas the gong gong uh, the tut all of these were widely available in all the coastal areas of global and uh, like uh, even clams like giant clams sometimes you will be able to find them but only in certain areas lah. so like right now uh, the only place that you can find an entire array of all these intertidal marine creatures that the residents used to forage would be at the Chek wetlands which is now of course a uh, protected uh it's a protected zone now lah. so in the past uh, specifically enough for Chek mainly because it's located in the eastern side of Lower where most of the Malay residents used to stay Cet Jawa was an important area for the Malay community for them to um, gather their daily sustenance. So for them, the Chik Jawa is unique because when it's low tide, you would literally walk two kilometers out uh, into the sea to, to find the best forms of uh, uh, sea life for them uh. So they would gather all these uh, mollusks. Um, in Malay, we have um, in Malay we call them the remis. We also have the lokan. We also have the gonggong. Gong. We also have the siput sedut merah. Um, just lots of uh, just lots of seafood, <laughs> that's what I could say. So like, so that was uh, some of the interesting um, seafood that you were forage for. Yeah, I guess. Then in terms of, like on land, uh, the animals that they used to always have are the chickens, because it's kind of very typical to you for you to have chickens in a kampung. But I think like. Uh, Going off on a tangent, what was interesting to me now is like when we celebrate Hari Raya nowadays in the city, we will always go for like mutton and beef to cook our rendang. But uh, for my mum, the chicken was actually considered like the beef of today. So mainly because the chicken was also considered quite, quite hard for you to get. So don't even imagine getting beef. So getting beef was considered... Only for the more privileged people of the island, and this is usually for at least for Hari Raya Haji, where some of them would offer to slaughter um the lambs and stuff. Like only then will you get this kind of uh, mutton and uh, beef. But for my mom, uh, every time it's Hari Raya, that is the only time for you to actually slaughter the chicken to mm. to 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 enjoy uh chicken rendang. So like on normal days, usually you leave the chicken undisturbed. So it's only when Hari Raya that's when my mom said uh she and all of her siblings were tasked to catch all the chickens and then put them inside a basket. And then the next day when the announcement was made, okay, tomorrow's Hari Raya, that's when they would just bring all the chickens out one by one, like on death row. And then my grandfather would take out a parang and then just (laughs) slaughter. So so to me, that was was something quite exquisite. like, Like something nowadays that you find that a chicken is something that we eat every day. But for my mom, chicken is something that is very difficult to get or at least even if you have it, you can eat it every day, but only on certain special occasions like Hari Raya, or wedding receptions, or like um, something that we could consider like our kanduri, which is basically like maybe like a form of Thanksgiving. Uh, I think that's the best way to relate how a kanduri actually is. And yeah, so that's it.
0: Mm. So do you think the scarcity of meat on the island impacted the way your mom approaches cooking and food now, even when she lives in modern Singapore?
1: Mm, I guess like nowadays, at least in modern Singapore, <laughs> her main complaint now is like uh, when she goes to the market, the fish is how much? And be like, she'll always be panicking like, why is the fish so expensive? Back in my day, we used to fish. And then would be okay, but that, that was back in your day. Now you can't, now you have to go to the market and buy these things. And there's something like along with the chicken as well. So like for nowadays, with the conveniences that supermarkets have or the wet markets have uh, in the availability of food, um, she would mostly just complain about the price more than more than about thinking about, um, how, uh, different things are now in gathering the food in Singapore, uh, than back in the days. Uh.
0: Mm. So, um, I think recently I saw on Instagram, your, your post about the recent foraging, uh, legislation. <laughs> Um, and you talked about how um, it would impact the islanders' culture if these laws were put into place. Can you tell me more about that?
1: The potential impact that could you know, um, amount from this is that the government may be looking into ways to um, prevent such instances from happening. And given how our government had always been of a regulatory approach, it is quite possible that they might just um, enact a certain form of restriction or a ban uh, entirely on the act of foraging for intertidal marine creatures. So um, when I first heard the news or when I first saw it turn viral on social media at first my initial beginning was like but the islanders or at least those who used to stay in the coast in the past this used to be their daily event they would come out in those numbers and usually like for us in the days also, so, we only took what we need and not uh, be over excessive because we understood uh, the importance of balance uh, when living together with nature. So like, in my opinion, when I saw the comments, one of the most funniest comments that me and my mom read was a person who you seem to be very upset with the, with the, with the act of people digging up and damaging the soil of the sea and leaving huge holes inside the water. And then my mom is like, does she know what the high tide does to the host <laughs> and then to me i'm like clearly this person is just too fanatical in her approach of trying to um, enforce her own views of protecting intertidal marine creatures so like this whole event actually is interesting because it goes to show the scale of um, the amount of people that are passionate in um, advocating for the preservation of marine life in singapore which is a good thing which which is obviously a very noble cause but at the same time, you can also see what happens if the voices become too loud and that it will overpower the concerns of people of other communities. So, like honestly, um, when you look at it from your situation, if you feel very passionately about something, there's a very high chance that we will be blinded um, by the impact that it would cause to other communities. So, what's in, what's um, intriguing about the whole foraging issue is that for us as former islanders and those who used to live by the coast, um, we actually had to depend on foraging for these kind of uh, intertidal marine creatures for food for the day or at least for the week. And so like when these kind of practices um, of trying to find it, it's not like you can find it anywhere. You still need to know the proper location. you need to know the proper depth and and um, basically you just need the knowledge uh, in order for you to to find these things lah. So it's not something that can just be easily done um, without proper education. Lah. So in terms of like, Back in the day, um, what was interesting was how my mom introduced me to the act of foraging for these intertidal marine creatures. To um, me, of course, uh, I didn't do it on plowbin, but my mom brought me out to Changi Beach. So again, that whole beach is too significant to me because um, at least for my mom, I guess she managed to at least be as close to plowbin as possible also at the same time. So whenever we were foraging, she would always just view plobin from, from across the Across the sea, So what was interesting was how my mom used to hand me over this toy, Henrik. Uh, so she used to just show me the motion uh, the motion of, okay, I just had to put it inside the sand and just keep digging and digging until I find something la. And to me, I'm like, this is some weird sand puzzle building uh, activity, but it was't lah. so basically, at that point in time when I was still very young, my mom was already introducing me to the act of foraging, and that was when my mom also was sharing me so I said, ah, back in the days. Your grandmother used to used to teach how to find these kind of things. Like, if you want to find um, if you want to find this particular uh, kelpa, you'll have to find it uh, along the beaches over here. So we'll just we'll just be we'll, we'll literally be like crabs on the beach. We'll be we'll be starting from one position and we'll just literally just horizontally follow along the coast, and then we look behind like, oh, that's a lot of raking done. But also at the same time, we'll be able to find all the different. Uh, Types of clams that we could bring back and we could cook. So that's also at the same time, instead of just the act of foraging, my mom would show me the act of cooking. So that was when my mom used to say, okay, so first thing first, we have to put it inside the water and then we we'll just put in some salt so that we can remove uh, any form of sand or or, or, or or excess seawater that's available inside the clam so that it won't be too salty. So these kind of things, it's really it's really just like, um knowledge that's only available uh, from those who used to do these things on a regular basis lah. so then afterwards uh, she would say okay we'll boil it uh, together with some um, is it ginger or is it turmeric? ginger so together with some ginger and uh, garlic uh, to remove any uh, taste of fishiness then we'll just boil it over and then my mom will say okay there are many ways to prepare it you can either prepare it as sambal or together with soy sauce Or, in other terms, if you're lucky enough to have an open fire, we could just forget the whole um, boiling process and just immediately just roast it over an open fire and then you just eat it uh, it as it is. uh. So, to me, um, that was interesting. That was an interesting approach of how my mom wanted to pass down this knowledge to me. uh. And to me, living in the city, uh, these kind of things you wouldn't really you wouldn't really dwell on it that much if you just continued staying in the city for too long. So I guess for my mom, it was a very clear sign of how proud she was of her islander identity that even on the mainland, she wanted to make sure that her children managed to learn what she did on the offshore islands also.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. I feel like uh, the islanders have such an intimate knowledge of how to um, be in harmony with nature and uh, really prepare things. And, and I'm sure they have techniques of their own, like using open fire, which you know people who live in modern Singapore would not be accustomed to. So do you feel that um, the narrative in Singapore, do you feel like it's a fair representation to you?
1: I think the current narrative of Singapore has always been that we need to be number one in the whole world and we need to paint ourselves as this shining city in asia where we are so used to the um so used to the ideas of western ideologies and just to make sure that hey look we've modernized we are together with the rest of the modern world so we're fi- we finally made it uh, we finally became successful in a way so like in the whole process from my perspective in the whole process of progressing as a country we did gain a lot But for myself, I still feel like we lost something very valuable to ourselves, which was our unique identity being a part of the Malay archipelago and being a part as an island in this archipelago. So this whole archipelago itself has a lot of its own unique culture, its own unique sense of um, indigenous way of life had been somewhat looked down upon, had always been seen that this is a third world status. If we want to make a living in this world, we had to forget all of these traditions. We had to remove all of this heritage. We have to forget uh, all of these um, practices, and really, if we want to be seen by the rest of the world, uh, we need to be like them. So, if we want to be like the, if we want to be viewed by the superpowers, we need to be like them. So, to me, from what I saw, is that you know, um, through the eradication of the kampung houses, to me, that was, I would say, like quite a, quite a very painful moment. I think, particularly for the Malay communities, because when it comes to the kampung houses for the Malays, it's not just some random structure that you make, because in terms of building the house, it also comes together with its own characteristics, like for example, for the Malays, why most of the houses are built on stilts. In Malay, we call it the rumah panggung, so according to Malay history, of course, we used to live by the sea, we used to live by the rivers, and so the reason why our houses were built on stilts was basically just to prevent flooding was one, but but the second reason was for proper ventilation. So what happens is that when you have a void deck underneath, you actually have all of the wind from uh, from the breezes at night. They will actually flow underneath the house and it become a natural aircon for you for underneath. Oh. So to me, this is actually something that you know is a part of our culture and something that not many people view because people just say, well, oh, okay, Malay house. They they usually like they usually look a little bit higher than the rest. Then uh, Chinese house usually they look symmetrical. In fact, for Chinese kampung houses, for the houses to be built." It is always in compliance with feng shui. That's why the houses are always symmetrical. So even in terms of kampong houses, even for the Chinese community, when you build these houses, you follow certain guidelines that are very unique to your own culture. So It's the same thing for the Malay community. So when the for the Malay community, when let's say for example, for example, like most of the houses that has been demolished, uh, for them, they would come across two things. One is probably like an erase, like a. Re- is erasure the proper word? I forgot what's the proper word for it. Basically, the removal of, uh, of a particular cultural practice is one thing. And for them, also, uh, it's the hardship of their forefathers because these houses were built by their ancestors. So when they saw that, uh, I mean, let's say, of course, the government has been fair in providing proper compensation and to provide a proper housing afterwards. But for them, Um, They know that this house was built by their grandparents or their great-grandparents or those that came before them. And it was their responsibility or the generations that came after to look after the house and to make sure that it's just properly maintained. The idea of a kampung to them is really more than just a house. It was their home, it was their identity and for some it might be considered a family heritage. Each house was unique in its own way and it was an identity and representation of each individual family. So for most of the, at least for like most of the Malay families who used to live in these kampung houses, um, they would see their houses as uniquely them. It is literally a living embodiment of who they are. So when these houses were removed to make way for national development, of course it pains them a lot. And this is honestly more true for those who used to live on Plough or more particularly at least for the residents of Kampung Surau where my grandparents used to stay. So in the past, there were news that for Kampung Surau, they wanted to develop the entire Malay village into a recreational zone. Some even mentioned that they wanted to transform Kampung Surao into a water amusement park on Pulau Bin. So uh, most of the people did, did, did not have a choice because it was in the name of national development. So they had to evict themselves and they moved to the mainland. Of course, with proper um, compensation by the government. Lah. But what happened is 40 years later, nothing happened to their village on Pulau Bin. So it's literally just an entire village that's wiped out and became a forest. So for most of the former residents of Kampung Surau, they would feel the pain, I would say, much more stronger than those who used to live in the mainland. Because at least for the mainland, some of them might feel, okay, la, my house is no longer here, but at least now I know that there's something being used in this, in this plot of land that would have contributed for um, the nation's progress and development. But for Plurbin, like there were lots of plans for the island, but... When most of these houses were destroyed, when an entire Malay village was wiped off the map and just turned into a forest, most of the residents or the former residents, they can only just express pain and sorrow. So that's why like, for most of them, when they come back to the island, some of them even mentioned to me before, like one, I, I don't know if I'm brave enough to come back to the island, really because I don't want to come back to, to where my house used to be and to see that nothing has been done, but it's just turned into... A place where the trees were planted and where monkeys and wild boars just happily frolick around. For them, it hurts them because at least like for them, especially those who were born on the island, they remembered growing up there, all their memories from birth till the day of the eviction, which would probably be in the 20s or 30s for most of them. They 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 will just come back to see memories only, and not a physical, um a physical space of where they used to stay. So that's why like in terms of like, like um for them to to see the kampong as no more and for this narrative that the kampong is something that shouldn't be um looked back upon with pride to them it hurts them because these kampungs are their identity. This is how I would view that for the Malay community, this is how they view their own sense of identity. Looking at the kampong houses, this is what made them feel proud of who they are also.
0: Yeah, you know, whenever I go to Pulau Ubin, it just strikes me as a place that is quite derelict, that is not being uh, kept well, or, you know, there's just not much national attention placed on it to really maintain it in a way. Um, And you just have, you know, bicycle shops for people who want to cycle and like one or two restaurants. So how do you think the future of Pulau Ubin could be?
1: Uh, unfortunately, for now, the future of Ploughbin will still be quite bleak because if you we were to look at the population right now on Ploughbin, it has dwindled extremely uh, over the past decade. Um, back in its heyday, the 1960s, there used to be, based on certain consensus, that's mentioned that uh, Ploughbin used to have between 2,000 to 5,000 residents back in the day. But right now on Ploughbin, there's only like, in terms of active residents, the numbers are just down to at least 30. So you could see that this is a far cry of how of how are you able to sustain a community with just 30 people. So for them, um, that's why like in terms of like the identity of Ubin has definitely shifted a lot. Uh, I would say maybe in the beginning of the 1990s, when many of the residents had to, to move to the mainland. So for most of the businesses uh, you mentioned just about the bicycle shops and restaurants, last time in the main village, of course, we didn't have the idea of a bicycle rental shop. There's no need to rent bicycles on the island. But it's mainly because when Pulau Bin was supposedly transformed into this uh, recreational area uh, where many tourists decided to come, uh, that's when the residents know that if they wanted to continue to stay on the island, if they wanted to still have a form of um, income for themselves on the island, they had to change their ways. So most of the Chinese community that managed to stay in the main village, they had to resort to opening up the bicycle rental shops, and they also had to resort to uh, opening restaurants. So there was an entire shift uh, of how the Ubin community used to function. So, like in the past as well, in the main village, there's this uh, concrete building that still stands today. That's located right next to the Chinese temple. There, that concrete village, uh, sorry, that concrete building used to be the Pulau Ubin clinic. So right now, you can also see that on Pulau Bin many of the facilities and amenities that are crucial in the running of a community are no longer present. So the clinic is no longer there. So that's why most of the residents who, who might have not been forced to evict had to move themselves because the conveniences or medical assistance is no longer there. So that's why um, following the closure of the clinic, many people have decided to move. And also together with schools. So let's say like for the Binchiang school, the, the Plough Chinese Primary School, uh, when it was closed, also most of the Chinese residents that needed uh, to send their kids to school, uh, they've also decided to, to move to the mainland. Mainly because if you don't have a school uh, on the island, it will be too inconvenient for them to 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 uh, send them to and from uh, to and fro from the mainland to the island on a daily basis. So that was one thing. So even for the Malays. What is interesting about the Malay Kampung is that um, we used to also have our own shops, we used to have our own provision shops, we used to have our own, um, I would say cafes. We also used to have a madrasa, an Islamic learning school, an Islamic learning center. We also used to have a primary school and we also used to have a mosque. So what's interesting today is that, on Tularbin, the Malay Kampung doesn't have any these anymore, but we still have a Malay Kampung, but the amenities are no longer present. So I guess like certain people also mentioned that it feels weird to enter a Malay kampung without a mosque. Mm. So like for most of them, they, they always associate that a Malay kampung would need to have a mosque, we need to have a school, we need to have all these other amenities. But nowadays, um, there's no place of worship for the Malay Muslims on the island. There's no school for them to, to also learn. There's also no provision shop for them that's convenient for them to just do their daily groceries anymore. So, like, what's also fascinating, or at least what's intriguing, is that at least for the Chinese community, you still have your temples, you still have like your shops, your goods, your, your provision shops, your restaurants. But for the Malay community, the entire um, set of amenities that's needed to run a community is no longer there. So, like, when we want to look at the future of Pulau it is very unpredictable because at the same time, we still understand that, at least from my current understanding, the government's position is that they want to ensure that Kulau is kept as rustic as possible for as long as possible. But for most people, they are not too comfortable with the phase four as long as possible because that is under the direction of the government. Whenever the government feels that, ah, time is up, let's just redevelop the place, they will do it. Because as according to most of the master plans um, from the uh, URA master plans of recent years, Kulau has always been looked at as a place of potential development. So no matter what, there's always this fit that. Sooner no, or later, Pulau Bin will be redeveloped. There will be a, a small HDB uh, estate that rises from here because it was already floated back in the 1990s where they wanted to actually build um, uh, uh, an MRT line onto Pulau Bin. So they wanted to have a plan for an extension from Punggol into Pulau Bin, into Pulau Tekong to reconnect back to the million Tanah Merah. So there was already this plan. So. Um, you, for us, in terms of trying to see the future of Pulau for it to be kept as trusted as possible is the most ideal way. But we always know that it, that Bain continues to remain vulnerable because of how um, we need to develop our nation. But at least for myself, as a descendant from the Pulau community, I always wish that there will always be steps and active uh, measures taken to ensure that we can continue to keep Pulau as rustic as possible. But the the idea of rustic as possible to me, there there also needs to be like certain um, uh, views into it because many people say like, oh, uh, if you go to Pulau now, uh, this is a picture of how Singapore used to be in the nineteen sixties. But unfortunately for myself, I had to disagree with that statement, mainly because if you want to see Pulau Bin now and think of it as Pulau Bin in the 1960s, it's wrong. Because in the 1960s, Pulau Bin was different than how it was now. Pulau Bin back in the days, the compounds were properly maintained. There were lots of people who stayed there. You have all of these essential um, services that kept the continue uh, kept the community running. And right now, when you go to Pulau Bin, most of the houses have unfortunately become derelict and mostly because most of the residents that still stay are the elderly. There's no way for them to be as energetic or as as strong as they were in the past to maintain these houses for themselves. So if there's no proper assistance given by the government or if there's no proper funding uh, to help these people, chances are these houses will collapse one day and these people will have no choice but to also leave. So that's something that we have to um, try not to, to, to happen. Because at least for at least for myself, when I see the kampongs that still stand, I still feel like for these people that used to stay in these kampong that they still stay in these houses, I will consider them the luckiest people in Singapore. I still do. Because whenever I see like the former uh, the current residents of Bin, they still have their home, I still look at them to say you are the luckiest people of Singapore. Because you still have a still have a kampong house for you to to relive the days of uh, of simpler times back in the days.
0: Um, but do you think there's a possibility of us romanticising the kampong life? In that you know the grass is always greener on the other side, and things were always you know they were always better in the old days. Do you think we will um, do you think we are falling trap to that?
1: I think the idea of romanticising about the kampong life is is unique depending on the generation because I guess. Um, for the elderly generation, they know what it's like to live in a kampung. But at least for younger generations, maybe like for myself, sometimes we tend to forget that, you know, living in a kampung is simple. But like my mom used to say, it's also difficult at the same time. So like some people used to, they, there's always this narrative that islanders used to be lazy people that, that used to be, you know, just, just fishing, just sleeping, just enjoying life and, and so on. But like what my mom and what? I guess even Dawson's mom used to share, saying that if I were to throw you on the island and for you to live on the island on your own, you'll die the next day. And that's mainly because it's true. Because like, we will never be able to understand fully like how it is like to, to live in a kampong, to, to actually work hard for your food, to forage for this food. And because of the, of the tedious labor that we needed to, to, to keep our day going, that itself, contradicts the term that we are a lazy people that we're just lazy so like but mostly because of this narrative that used to paint the Malays as the lazy natives it's really just not true it's really because if we were really that lazy we will all have stuff to death we wouldn't be working in the fields we wouldn't be fishing out at sea for days at at, at certain times just to make sure that we are able to provide food and shelter for our children to me how how on earth is that a a sense of laziness of the of the natives. That's just not true.
0: Mm. So how do you think the lay Singaporean can support you or to stand alongside your community in your efforts to preserve your own heritage?
1: For now the most important thing is to just to re-educate ourselves sometimes. We honestly have to be very critical of the narratives that has been presented to us throughout our history. Right now to, to change the narrative that login uh, is more than just a place where you can go for your recreational activities. Uh, that's already an important step. Uh, to acknowledge that uh, Pulau together with other offshore islands, um, used to be home to many of the indigenous islanders of Singapore. Uh, that's already a more, uh, very important step. Then afterwards is to just um, try to reach out to those uh, who are like me and Fred Daos and uh, really just be curious. I think that's the most important thing, to be curious of how Um, things were in the past and um, I've always uh, looked at it this way that the best way to move forward is to really look back in your past and for myself uh, at the same time um, in terms of like maybe some people uh, find it very hard to relate but usually um, it is always best to, to always try to look back into your roots. Because uh, for myself, when I look at my identity, culture, and my heritage, I always like to view it as a tree. And I always feel that it's always great for us to view um, our progress as how a tree grows. Like, your tree can continue to grow and reach into the skies and it can be extremely tall. But if you never took care of your roots, or if you decided to say, hey, let's just remove our roots entirely, no matter how tall your tree is, it will come tumbling down. And so, I always feel that if Whenever you want to do something in life, just remember your roots and always to protect your roots at all, at all times. So in terms of like maybe trying to um, find a form of like um, relatability with, with the causes of those who stayed on the islands, it's always fun to look back at our own roots. It's always, it's always interesting to just ask your parents, how was life like for you growing up? And I think it will always... Um, I think great things will always happen when you ask your parents, how was life like growing up? Uh, but for myself, I didn't ask uh, because my mom always share with me without me asking. But at least, you know, see what happens. Uh? <laughs> because like, if my mom didn't nag at me about the kampung life, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. And I think I wouldn't have made quite an impact to Ploughbain and maybe for the other islander communities if I did not listen to my mom. So <laughs> great things can always happen. Just be ready for it. Uh. Um, especially for myself to still be 24 at the time of this uh, recording. A a lot has happened, and I don't know if I'm gonna do a lot more throughout my life. But just, you know, but one thing for sure, if Pulau Bin is something that I want to speak up for, or like the way of life for the islanders is something that I want to speak up for, for the rest of my life, then I'm happy to do it.
0: That's fantastic. I feel like you're such an inspiring person and you're so young. So, you know, I really am hopeful for the change that you're advocating for. And, um, you know, I'm very excited to continue following your journey on Instagram.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Shahzuan Majid, who is the founder of One's Ubin Journal. Also, for those of you who don't know, the Hungry Ghost Festival edition of Seasonings Magazine is out. It is available for purchase on seasoningsmag.com or at Kinokiniya. And we also offer digital copies and ship worldwide for those of you who live overseas. Every purchase of an online class or Seasonings Magazine goes a long way in making Singapore Noodles a more sustainable platform. Once again, thank you all for listening to the podcast and I'll catch you next week.